0: Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Earlier this year, I did a show about the benefits of meditation. It's episode number 439 for those who want to check it out. Shortly after that interview, I came across a book called The Buddha Pill, which takes a critical look at the research on meditation and exposes some of the weaknesses of the hype that currently surrounds it. As someone who loves to look at both sides of an issue, I was certainly intrigued, and today on the show, I talked to one of the co authors of The Buddha Pill. I began my conversation with Miguel Farias, a psychologist and therapist trained at Oxford University, by discussing. How the current mindfulness craze we're experiencing in the 21st century isn't entirely new, but is similar to a trend which emerged in the 1960s and 1970s around the practice of transcendental meditation. Miguel explains how meditation research began with transcendental meditation, the limits of that research, and why transcendental meditation has now been eclipsed by mindfulness meditation. In the second half of the show, Miguel shares some problems with the Western approach to mindfulness meditation, including detaching it from a spiritual framework, making it a self centered affair, and using it to take a more passive stance to life. We also explore the the often overlooked downsides of meditation, including the fact that it can sometimes have the very opposite of the calming, centering effect people are seeking. We end our conversation discussing whether meditation is truly effective in reducing stress, anxiety, and depression, Miguel's conclusion on whether people should practice it, and if you should ultimately feel guilty if you decide not to. Really fascinating show. After it's over, check out the show notes at aom.is Budapil. Miguel Farias, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. I'm really happy to be talking to you, Brad.
0: So you are a psychological researcher. You've done some time as a therapist as well. And you got this book out called The Buddha Pill, where you take a critical look at research on meditation and the effects of it. So how did you get started looking at meditation and the psychological effects of it?
1: Yeah, it wasn't originally intended to be as critical as it turned out to be. Because I'm uh, I'm actually a fan of meditation overall. I've been doing it for for a while. Um, so what happened is that when I was doing my undergraduate degree in psychology back in Lisbon in Portugal, I became more and more interested in spiritual practices. And. The, I mean, there's been some research from the psychological perspective on, on religion and religious practices, but mostly on on standard stuff. So there is a, a growing literature, for instance, on religion and health, mostly coming from the U.S. But there was very little. On spiritual practices such as energy healing and also meditation. So I actually, when I came to do my doctorate in Oxford, I was already interested in trying to ascertain to what an extent the claims that there's lots of claims starting in the 60s uh, with many new age ideas that if you do this, if you do this technique of meditation, if you do this kind of chanting, this will radically transform you. So I was interested in looking into that back when I started my doctorate. Then I realized that this is actually really, really difficult to to try to measure and quantify. I mean, starting with personal change and then these people doing lots of different practices. So I ended up postponing that part of my question for some 10 years until I met the director of a small charity in Oxford that organizes yoga and meditation classes across most British prisons. And they had lots of anecdotal evidence, letters from prisoners who had been trying out yoga and meditation, but they didn't have any quantitative study. And when I looked at the literature, I realized that there had never been any, I mean, nicely conducted, randomized controlled trial, looking at the effects of yoga and meditation in prisons. So that's what really got me started looking into the science of meditation. It was this collaboration with this charity called the Prison Phoenix Trust.
0: And we'll talk more about that because I think it's interesting and sort of the findings, you did do a study with them. But before we get to that, let's talk about the history of meditation research and the history of meditation as part of you know a cultural phenomenon. So right now, in the 21st century, there's a lot of talk about mindfulness meditation. You can take courses on it, there's books on it, there's blog articles on it, and they're all... Talking about how you know the mindfulness meditation can transform you, can reduce anxiety, alleviate depression, reduce stress. But as you mentioned, this isn't new. You talked about in the 60s and 70s. We had something very similar with transcendental meditation. So for those who aren't familiar with it, what is trans- transcendental meditation and and how is it how's how is it similar to the cultural phenomenon that we're seeing with mindful meditation today?
1: Yeah, no, really, really interesting and good questions. So many, many people of my parents' generation, for instance, so who were who in their 20s and 30s during the 1960s and 70s, they would be acquainted with the idea of transcendental meditation. What's really interesting about this meditation technique is that it was really what we call the first wave of the scientific studies of meditation up to then. You had these small-scale studies, mostly looking at experts. But then Maharishi, who's the founder of TM, Transcendental Meditation, shows up. The Beatles are also helping in, in spread the word about Maharishi and TM. And the technique is really simple. While lots of other meditation techniques are embedded within a larger belief system, and you have to do lots of other rituals. This one only involves a small ceremony when you learn the technique. And the technique is really simple. You basically meditate for 20 minutes, twice per day, and you focus on the words, which we call a mantra. It's a sound. Actually, it's not even coming from Sanskrit. It's just a sound that Maharishi said that he received from his teachers. So people are given a sound, they focus on the sound for 20 minutes twice a day. And you know, within a few years, you had quite a lot of people who were being introduced to this technique during the, the 60s and then throughout the 70s. Many of them were young graduates from good US universities. It also comes then to, to Europe So I mention in in our book that I was actually introduced to meditation via TM as a child. I mean, I didn't practice it then, but my parents had just done a course on it. And Maharishi, who was a graduate of physics, so he actually studied physics before he dropped out and then became a guru. When he came to the West, he had a very good insight that the only way to pull meditation out of a sort of metaphysical New Age-ish niche would be to have science backing it up. So he contacted a number of researchers and they started, I mean, what would become really what uh, this first wave of scientific studies of meditation. And in, so this happens, I mean, 20, 30 years before mindfulness became a really big thing i mean bigger now than than tm was but i mean th- there was so much enthusiasm about the growth of tm that by 1975 maharishi thought that it's a kind of new age psychological idea that the sort of the, the essence or the waves around the practice of all these hundreds of thousands of people practicing TM would affect the global consciousness of our planet, which should bring about uh, an era of peace.
0: Well, in fact, they, they tried doing studies to prove that. You mentioned one, I think it was in Washington, D.C. or around there, where they did a had a whole bunch of people doing transcendental de- meditation at the, the same time for a month. And then yeah, they, they try to find reduction in crime.
1: Yeah. So I usually mention that study, because it's the largest, single, most expensive study ever conducted on meditation. There's been large grants, but that is a single study that cost them something like four million US dollars back then, because they had to bring all these people from different places in the US, concentrate them in a place in Washington, DC, and then they kept them for some weeks to meditate, and they increased the number of meditators. It was actually a really interesting idea. I have to say it's quite unique. There really isn't anything like this in the study of, of meditation, or even on the idea that any kind of individual practice may have such a social, large social effect. The idea was that it would affect this this global consciousness of the planet, and it would decrease the the levels of stress at this somewhat um, ethereal or non-physical level. But this would then filter down into people's individual consciousnesses. And uh, that would bring about a reduction in things like violent crime, burglary, rape. And um, the, the paper shows that it did decrease overall. Uh, but when we looked better at what was happening is that they didn't report everything. So for instance, there had been a, a crime, a single mass murder committed during the period in which they were studying. But they consider that what we call a statistical outlier, which means it was a single event. Um, so it's very, very different from a normal distribution of how crime, even murder, would happen. So they deleted that from the data set, which is why they didn't report it. So the results aren't as, as stellar as they, they seem to be at
0: first. So, you know, besides that one study, as you mentioned, there was a lot of research around transcendental meditation. that was getting published in prestigious journals. I mean, so what were these research articles saying that are the results of meditation? And when you look back at that research, say you know now they're forty years later, do those do those findings hold up? Uh,
1: so the first paper by transcendental Meditation researchers was actually published in the journal Science. So, one of the major scientific outlets for science publications. And the kind of claim and the kind of measurements that they're interested in is very much what we'll then are going to find. So, they're interested in how it affects our physiology, our psychology, and our well being. So, there was a plethora of studies looking at simple things like does it affect your heart rate? Does it affect how you breathe? Does it affect your levels of anxiety, stress, depression? Does it affect your overall well-being? But also things like, does it change your personality traits? If you're particularly anxious or neurotic, does it lower your levels of neuroticism? Does it increase your IQ levels? Does it make you act in a more empathic, social-oriented way? It's very much what we're still interested in when we study mindfulness these days and overall the they had positive results there was a a large meta analysis published some years ago which looks at both at transcendental meditation and mindfulness and because because the times were different there are some methodological issues which are now somewhat outdated in the sense that they have less randomized control trials that ma- mindfulness has. But that the main reason for that is that back in the 70s and 80s, there weren't so many psychological trials conducted in, in this way. But many of the physiological results um, stand out, such as the, the benefits for heart problems. So... Quite a lot of these studies are are still good research, and they give us a sort of decent indication of how meditation can affect your your psychological well-being and your physical health.
0: But as you mentioned uh, earlier, researching or doing experiments on meditation is hard because you know typically the best you know the typical the best study to do is a a double blind placebo yeah but the thing is like how do you how do you do a placebo for meditation right
1: yeah this is an ongoing debate that's a very good point many meditation researchers think that you can't do a placebo because you can't find anything that would replicate meditation and that would also be cheating on the participants i feel more ambivalent there were a couple of earlier studies with TM in the mid-1970s by Jonathan Smith in which he created I mean, a very, a very ingenious placebo for meditation where he wrote a whole manual about a, a pseudo-meditation technique which consisted of simply sitting down for 20 minutes and doing nothing. But he convinced participants that this was a new meditation technique, which put together the theories of all other meditation techniques. And perhaps because of this, that he convinced people that this was going to work, the outcomes he, he got from this placebo meditation were the same as for TM. So both the TM condition and this placebo meditation condition had better outcomes than those who weren't doing any meditation. And the problem with this is that it leads us to another ongoing debate, uh, which is whether meditation is just a form of relaxation or if it's doing something more than relaxation.
0: Okay so there's a debate on whether meditation is just relaxing you that's all it's doing so like what is the consensus in the the psychological field on that
1: Well th- there really is no consensus there there are attempts within some studies to compare this to relaxation and sometimes the results are different but that doesn't happen always but the thing is most of these problems are embedded within a context, which is what exactly is meditation and what exactly is relaxation. And most of the meditation researchers aren't aware that physical relaxation, the way it started out in the West, is very similar to that of meditation. It was coming out of certain spiritual traditions and it was an attempt to take out some of these techniques and make them purely secular right? But the kind of processes you find in simple physical relaxation have some clear overlaps with that of meditation. In the sense that you're, for instance, if you're doing muscular relaxation, you're focusing slowly through various parts of your body, your muscles. Sometimes you're contracting them and then relaxing them. But the, the kind of mental process involved in this, the kind of focusing, it does have many similarities with the kind of focused process of meditation.
0: And another issue that it's hard to resolve, too, um, is this. So, you know, you mentioned that study where they had the, the placebo set up, where it's basically... Guy came up with sort of a fake meditation process where they just sat and did nothing yeah. and it worked. And then someone meditated and it worked, reduced stress. So, like one issue is like, does meditation work because people just want it to work?
1: Oh well, the more we know about the so-called placebo effect, the more we know that expecting something to work is part of the reason why it works. This has become so prominent in the placebo studies that they're now doing what they call open placebo trials, where they explicitly tell people that I'm going to give you a placebo and I'm going to give you a placebo because there's all these studies showing that placebo works. And it there's the results are astonishing. Even things which we think of as completely physical, such as lower back pain, they they seem to have very good results when they give these open placebos. So undoubtedly, with meditation, particularly now that there is this sort of media hype that this is going to, to cure everything, that your expectation about it is certainly going to interfere with the outcomes.
0: So and TM was really big in the 60s and 70s, and it had a huge cultural impact. And I don't think a lot of people know, if you're younger, that a lot of the self-help gurus that we see today Deepak Chopra, uh, John Gray, the Men are from Mars women women are from Venus Guy. like they all started out in transcendental Meditation. That's true, yes, right. Um, but it dwindled like you don't I haven't really I've never met a 20 something transcendental meditationist meditation practitioner. So why did TM dwindle in popularity? That, that's a really good question. So there's still people
1: doing TM and researching TM and publishing on it. There's still at least one university of Transcendental Meditation in the US. And they they somewhat resent the fact that mindfulness has become so big. And most of these mindfulness researchers don't even cite in their articles the, the TM research. I, I think it's simply because they don't know of it, just because researchers are very focused on what's going on right now, and they don't tend to read what's happened in the past which sometimes isn't very a good way of doing science, but that's how it is. Now, different things happened with with TM. One is that they they sort of kept the trademark for it within the organization. So the major difference in terms of the expansion of TM versus mindfulness is that TM is still organized by a central organization, sorry, organized organization, it's still held by the central organization. You need to have a certified teacher that introduces you to the technique. There's a kind of formal initiation and you pay for this. Well, most of the people doing mindfulness courses, you also pay for them, but it's, it's become much more liberated. So anyone can learn from anyone. There is no central organization. There is no central control. In this sense, TM claims that we have much better control over the quality of our teachers because they're all trained in the same way by us, which doesn't happen with mindfulness. And this may, may be true. The other thing which happened with TM going back to, to the mid-late 70s is that they, they, they got somewhat enthusiastic, not just with these claims that this would change the world, but Maharishi thought that as more people got into TM, he started talking about advanced TM techniques, which would allow people to develop all kinds of paranormal powers, such as levitation. So the idea of levitation became a big, a big embarrassment. They even developed, well, how do you call it? So while sitting cross legged, And there's lots of wonderful pictures of some of these early TM meditators, in which they seem to be floating, but in fact they're jumping while cross-legged in this advanced state of, of TM. So it became somewhat of an embarrassment because people didn't actually levitate. But there were these kind of paranormal claims that couldn't be verified. I think that so that's that didn't help the image from a certain point onwards. But I think it had more to do with the, how this was marketed and the fact that they held the control, which is why it didn't keep growing. No, I, I should say that with mindfulness, there are similar utopian claims. The paranormal stuff is is less clear, although there are still ideas of experiencing pure consciousness. But there's I mean, people like Kabat-Zinn, who's the the creator of the major secularized format of mindfulness. He's he's become more and more open about his utopian beliefs on how mindfulness is going to change, I mean, the world in in various
0: ways. So let's talk about the difference between mindfulness meditation and TM. So TM, you said uh, there's a mantra that you repeat. It could be Om. I think is the most popular yeah. one. What does mindfulness meditation do that's different?
1: so the kind of while in tm and other meditation techniques you're either focusing on the sound the mantra or an image or the breath uh, <clears throat> with with mindfulness the idea is that you just keep the focus on the flow of consciousness in a non-judgmental way there are different definitions even kabat is somewhat ambiguous about what's essentially characterizes mindfulness but as as a technique coming from buddhist meditation the idea is to keep this this kind of overall awareness of your of your everything that comes into your perception to your awareness and and let it go so you you just keep focusing on the flow of your awareness without focusing on anything in
0: particular we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a thoroughly modern design. The exterior has been reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and the interior is built with robust materials and integrity. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. Durability has been tested to the extreme. Cargo capacity means more room for your gear. And there's been powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system that keeps you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering, and the Defender is ready for a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further, the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. That's LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. And now back to the show. And there, I mean, there's a lot of research now done about mindfulness meditation, as you mentioned. Are are the same problems that existed with the first wave of research on meditation, Does it do they still exist now with mindfulness meditation research?
1: Um. Well, yes, basically, yes. There's... Now, I mean some thousand over a few thousand papers published using mindfulness. And there's even more looking at mindfulness not just as a meditation technique but as a kind of um, cognitive ability to be mindful of in a non-judgmental way. But most of these studies, I mean have lots of methodological problems. Most of them, don't have control groups most of them aren't randomized control trials even even when there are randomized control trials um, we published a meta-analysis of mindfulness and compassion loving-kindness meditation studies where we found out that there are other kinds of biases introduced even in in randomized control trials for instance you tend to become more compassionate in the studies where the meditation teacher is also one of the authors in the published study, which means that there's some kind of experimentary facts, which happens when we know it happens in, in most experiments that you want your experiments to work. Therefore, implicitly you bias participants to act in a certain way. So there, yes, the basic answer. Yes, there's still methodological problems with this kind of research with mindfulness. And
0: so another issue with meditation research or just the idea that meditation can have benefits for you. So the first one is you know, meditation might work just because you you want it to work. Meditation can just be a form of relaxation. But another problem with meditation, that whether it works or not, is that you can, meditation is originally a spiritual practice. But the way it's practiced in the West, it's been stripped of that underlying spiritual nature, right? You can just be mindful without having to identify with any sort of religious practice. But can meditation be as effective without being part of some ethical or spiritual framework?
1: Yeah, there's, there's ongoing debates about this. The problem is we tend to think that meditation was a thing, was a technique that people have been practicing for thousands of years. And, and it doesn't. that's not the reality. There's different forms of techniques, which in the West we call contemplation. We didn't even call them meditation. But the thing is, this is just one part of a whole package which involved lots of other things. But for instance, if you go to, to Asia and you go into a Buddhist temple, you don't see people meditating there. People go there to pray, to ask things to the Buddha, So it's very similar to what happens in a in a church or in a synagogue. But we've developed this curious idea that Buddhists and Hindus have been doing these things for eight hours a day, and that's that's not true. Even people who were sort of monks and nuns who did it for more more frequently, this was just one part of the whole package, and they never expected the meditation technique per se. To work out, I mean, some kind of wonders. It was the whole package. It was the whole way of life. It was renouncing your worldly life, giving up everything, and studying the sacred scriptures. Whatever I mean, whether they're Buddhist or the Bhagavad Gita in the Hindu context. So, so that's one of the problems. That we we're sort of ignorant about how this works, that people never expected meditation to be the thing, but it was the whole package. And most of this, so most of these techniques were only used by a very, very restricted elite of these people who left everything behind, uh, which were a tiny minority. The other problem, which is, I'm not sure i call it a problem. It's It's really, really interesting. It's just the way that we... Think about the world these days that everything can be used to be turned into something else, into a, a mental health gadget or whatever. And this, of course, goes completely against the spirit of some of these world religions, like Buddhism. So you were never expected to be using any of these techniques for your own personal gain. No, no, it was quite the opposite. You were supposed to use this. To erase the idea of personal gains and to erase your sense of self, to become more selfless, not to become a better self. Um, so that's that's really, really creating a, I mean, an interesting existential paradox. But the intention is very different
0: from the original. Right. So us individualistic Westerners had made have made a selfless act into a selfish act in a way.
1: Yeah. I ha- I have to say I have to 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 create a nuance here, in the sense that within within the Eastern traditions there is a variety of ways in which these contemplative meditative techniques have been used. So within some Indian schools of Tantra, some people were using these to try to obtain particular paranormal powers or even to extend your I mean your life so that you could live for much longer. I mean, c- concerns that we have had for a very long time. So it's not that they weren't, there weren't people thinking of how I can use this for my own personal gain back then. There's, that's, there's always been that possibility. It's just that that used to be the sort of the exception, but it's become now the
0: norm. Yeah, and I think the other issue of when you try to extract meditation, spiritual practice from that ethical framework, you know, you get you you get the idea that you can become more compassionate just by sitting alone in your room, thinking loving kindness thoughts. I mean, they can help, but like really, the workaday stuff of actually being compassionate is being around people, right? That annoy you, and actually being compassionate in that 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 moment where you have to do it, right? So, like with Buddhism, there's a you're embedded in a community that reinforces those ideas as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I have to say, as a psychologist, I am somewhat disappointed that we've driven ourselves to think in a very counterintuitive and sometimes silly way. And there are various reasons why, as psychological researchers, we have been pushed in this way. Well, mostly because... There is money to do research and they want the research being done in a certain way. So part of our brain shuts off and we go where the money is, which is really stupid and um, that it's not very helpful. Of course, I mean, any sensible psychologist would would tell you that you're absolutely right, that things done within a, a group context are usually much more powerful. The other thing that we know also from history is that whenever there are movements in which you seem to start caring more about ideas which drive you away from the world and social movement and within yourself, and this has been happening since ancient Greek, there have been philosophical movements that have said very similar things. Oh no, you just have to think in a different way, you don't have to care about about the world, about politics. This is a sort of coping out thing like we've reached one of those civilizational stages where we just don't think that much of what we do can have any real influence in the world so we become we, we are just driven much more inwards because we've sort of given up on the idea that as we can create groups of people that actually make a difference and that's that's really sad yeah uh, it's it's just where we are, the stage in, in which we are. I think that part of the, what is driving the interest in mindfulness is is actually um, a sort of hopelessness about our future and our current situation.
0: And I think it also uh, speaks to the increased interest in Stoicism as well in the past decade. right? Stoicism is very similar. It's like, well... Yeah you know, the thing itself doesn't hurt you just how you think about it right and you know there's nothing you can do like you know then don't worry about it it's
1: okay yeah yeah but, but there again it's a very very interesting example how stoicism also happened at a particular historical moment when lots of people were feeling that no there's no point in engaging more with the social world as it is uh, let's just find another way of perfecting ourselves
0: So when you've taken a look at this research, I mean, are the claims that meditation proponents make, is there something to that? Can it actually alleviate depression, for example? That's one you've seen. Or anxiety, which are two mental health issues that a lot of people are struggling with today.
1: So yes, but it can alleviate things like the, the better evidence is for people who have had three or more episodes of depression. So to prevent them from relapsing into depression... Depression is, is a horrible thing. It's, it's a kind of a, I mean, I'm talking metaphorically, almost like a virus that stays within you, like, like malaria that never leaves. And um, if you've had it three times, then it's just the, the odds of you having it again just increase tremendously. And that's the reason why people like Mark Williams and, and others started looking at using mindfulness meditation they they were all doing cognitive behavior therapy and realized that there is this subgroup of people who keep getting depression. And cognitive behavior therapy had its limits in how effective it could be. So they started looking elsewhere. And there are some good results for mindfulness when used within this context. What is curious is that it seems to work better for some people, even within this specific sample of recurrent depressed people. So those who have higher childhood trauma, they react better to meditation. And we still don't know why that is. Now, with things like anxiety, pain, stress, with anxiety and pain, for instance, there is some evidence that it works. There is moderate evidence that it can help you. For stress, there really is very, very weak evidence that it can help you. Strangely enough, because the first application of mindfulness by Kabat-Zinn was particularly directed at stress. But on the other hand, what I always try to highlight is that all the everything the results indicate is that it works differently for various problems, but it usually doesn't work better than other techniques or the, nothing in the results shows that it's something miraculous or even quasi-miraculous.
0: Okay. So it's not, the, the, the hype, there might be a lot of hype about it. So it, it can work for some people, might not work for other people. But what I thought was the interesting thing about this book. And the reason I, that it caught my eye when I first came across it is that Whenever you talk, hear about, or read about meditation, it's always positive. Like meditation can help, you know, depression, anxiety, stress, etc. But they never talk about the negatives, like the downsides of meditation. Uh, But there's actually research on that. So walk us through what are what are the downsides of meditating? So this is
1: a sensitive issue, and there are people who feel very, very strongly about this. In the sense that if there is literature going back to the early 70s showing that there are paradoxical effects. This was highlighted first with the physical relaxation literature. Some people have what they call a paradoxical reaction. This is supposed to make you feel more relaxed, but for some people, it makes them more anxious. I mean, more anxious to the point of having a panic attack when you're supposed to be physically relaxing. So going back to the early 70s, you start to get... First, case studies of people who go on meditation retreats and they have psychotic episodes. Some surveys showing that some people are getting more anxious and more depressed, that other people feel all sorts of unexpected things. So, this has sort of been under the rug with mindfulness until the last few years. Actually, I think it was our book. I mean, that explicitly tried to address this. And we weren't expecting to do so. I remember that uh, when we wrote the book proposal, we wanted to have a chapter that focused on how meditation could be used for ill purposes. But we were more thinking like within some small religious groups, some people might use this to manipulate individuals. But when we were doing the research for the book, we then realized that there was this literature that had been mostly forgotten So basically, we still don't know why exactly it happens. Some people, we know that it happens, and now there is a general acknowledgement. What has happened since we've published the book until now is that there is a much more general acknowledgement, particularly amongst researchers, that these do happen. There are these so-called challenging experiences or even adverse effects associated with meditation. There is a huge disagreement about what may be the causes for this. Some would say that oh, it has nothing to do with the meditation. The problem is with the individuals personal history or whatsoever. I think that's that's rather arrogant. The straight answer is that we don't know yet. We don't know. Uh, there's evidence that sometimes it happens with people who have a mental health history. Other times, people seem to have no mental health problems at all. Now, the, the the sort of spectrum of potential adverse events varies considerably. Most of these negative effects aren't the most extreme, such as a psychosis. Most of them have simply to do with increases in anxiety or depression. Those would be the majority of them the people who seem to do it for longer tend to experience more difficulties, but we're still unclear why that is. If it's simply because if you're doing it for much longer, it's just much more likely that through your normal experience something will happen, and because you're doing meditation every day that there will be a coincidence. But it may also be that if you're using meditation for some kind of spiritual or self exploration purpose, that you may do it for longer periods than other people do, or more intensely, and this may may indeed be causing something unexpected.
0: Yeah, I think you mentioned one person from the research where they 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 did mindfulness meditation. They they got to the point where they kind of lost themselves. Like they didn't know where they. I don't know. This like they didn't feel good. Something didn't feel right, and as soon as they stopped the meditation, like that feeling went away.
1: Yes, yes. So what what we're trying to tell people that one of the major problems now is that the the mindfulness and meditation teachers, because they have this very naive positive idea of meditation, most of them don't have it in them to tell people to stop meditating when they're feeling something difficult or unpleasant, which is what usually they should say. Well, if this isn't working, you should stop and we have to see what's, what's happening. But then again, most of these people don't have any mental health training and they don't have also a, a, a very long experience with meditation. So it's overall a, a poor combination.
0: Right. And they're incentivized to keep people meditating as well, right? Because they they make money if you keep doing the course or keep going for classes. And I think you also mentioned one of the things they say, if, if something negative starts popping up, they'll say, well, that's good. It means you're getting to the surface this, this stuff that's bad and then we're going to get work through it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that having a, a good teacher is really very important because there may be indeed some kind of emotional issues coming up and perhaps the teacher is equipped to help you deal with this. But uh, because otherwise, and I'm thinking of, and we mentioned this in the book, that Deepak Chopra runs this his website and there's lots of people sometimes asking for advice about meditation, some of them who have been Experiencing something difficult, and sometimes he gives really, really responsible advice, such as someone who was experiencing deep grief while meditating. Oh, just just chant something, and it will eventually go away. Like, how does he know? How does he know that it will go away without knowing anything
0: about this person? It's really, really responsible. So let's go back to this experiment you did with the prison. So there's been this there's been meditation practice going on in prison. They're all this anecdotal evidence that it's reduced recidivism. People, criminals, like were less angry, etc. When you guys went in there and looked at the research and did a study, what did you find? Did meditation change these these prisoners?
1: Well, it really it really looks at how you're depends on how you're looking at it. Many things changes. We were particularly interested in looking at changes in emotions, if these people had more positive emotions, less negative emotions, if they were less anxious, if they were less aggressive, also if they had a better focus and an ability to withhold their impulses, which we know is associated with criminality. And and, and the answer is... I mean, it's sort of grayish in the sense that we got some of the positive results that we were expecting. People felt better. They had higher scores on positive effect, but they didn't really reduce their negative effect. They had lower stress and anxiety, but they didn't really have lower aggression. And there were some indications that they were able to withhold their impulses a little bit better. But again, it was, this one was a weak result. If, if indeed meditation and yoga could do that, that would be something quite important. Uh, but if you look at the larger literature, even on the facts on meditation, on attention, it's very, very mixed. The results aren't that great.
0: So it sounds like it made the prisoners feel better, but not necessarily act better.
1: Yeah, and that's a really, really big thing in, in psychology, I mean, getting kind of some psychological good effects. I mean, you can invariably get something,
0: but get people to behave in a different way—that's always much more difficult. Right, because uh, a lot there's a lot involved there. There's context, environment plays a huge role in how you behave or not. Yeah, exactly. Know? So yeah. I mean, Miguel, after doing all this research on meditation, like, what's your what's your final take on it? Like, should people run out and start meditating, or you know, should people feel guilty if they don't meditate? Who should meditate? <laughs> what, what's your take?
1: So one thing that's we're still trying to work out is for whom meditation works better and and worse. Once we know something more about that, we'd be able to give a, a much better answer to. Who should be doing this? To whom will it really will it really help? I I think what's really what keeps me doing things on meditation is that it's it's fascinating the way it's become not just a psychological or a health issue, it's really a societal issue. Why have we become so interested in an inward technique? Are we using this in the best way? I think it's somehow tapping into into something good. It's it's tapping into a kind of idealism or romanticism that we still hold, despite everything happening around us that isn't so great. So it's it's still tapping into that that resource of goodness and hope in us, and I think that's really really valuable. The thing is, we know that meditation as an inward inwards or reflecting technique, it's, it is is inevitably limited. So what is it that we need to do to make it more effective? So for instance, now in the UK, I think it's the same in the US, lots of people trying to, to get meditation programs in schools with children of various ages, as early as six. And again, this is being driven by... By a good idea, by the hope that this will allow children to deal better with anxiety, depression, to make them more more resilient. Mm-hmm. But I think it's stopping short. We should be asking what, how how can this allow us to really pause for a second and think better about how we're educating these kids. What is it that needs that we're not giving them. So the whole idea about mindfulness in particular is that it just allows us to, to stop and we do need to stop because the way things are it's just ridiculous and unhealthy, right? So I wish that meditation could be used to give us a, a proper way of pausing and reflecting deeper. Right now it's not leading to any deeper reflection in most cases. And If we get to that deeper level, it would then lead us to the next stage, which is actually we can think about doing things differently and we do need other people, right? If we want to do things differently and for this to work at a level that extends beyond myself. So in that sense, I think there is something potentially good about about meditation. But within that possibility of stopping and making us think, I think psychologists are in a way not helping this because of all the focus on, on the mental health issues that this helps with this, this helps with that. No, it, it will help very little, most people. I think the best thing coming out of it is the possibility to stop and allow us to rethink, rethink lots of stuff that is happening within us, in our lives and around us, which, which really needs, needs to be rethought carefully and, and to be changed. So I wish that we can use meditation more in that, that wider context. They're not just looking within.
0: So it sounds like meditation isn't an end, right? It's not a solution to the problems. It's it's a way for us to pause a bit so we can think about solutions to the problems, right? Like you mentioned, the school kids. I, I've read that too, where they're really doing this in like inner city schools, yeah. where you know kids have are facing a lot of stress at home, etc. And it's like, well, instead of solving the problems, you know, eliminating that stress we'll just make the kids more mindful, right? And it's like, well, yeah. okay, you did that, yeah. but like there's still things are still bad, right? Yeah. Um so maybe meditation can be like, well, stop, pause a moment, then we that'll allow us to solve those larger problems.
1: Yeah. I saw this. I mean, this was exactly what happened during the the 60s. There were lots of interesting ideas going on. But it was so individualistic at that stage that people were unable to get together and, and make this ferment work as a whole, as a as a societal whole. And the way things are being organized or, or disorganized with mindfulness, it's again, they're looking at it in a, in a micro way. So in a way, they're, they're throwing the baby out with with the water. There's something potentially good about this, but the way we're using it is just not going to bring about anything other than disappointment. And and this then leads me to think, well, after this, what will happen? What will come next? What will we will we attach our hopes to when we realize that meditation isn't going to, to
0: help us? So bottom line, I think it sounds like if, if you want to give meditation a try, it can be useful, but it's only a tool. It's not going to... To be the solution to your problems. If you don't meditate, it sounds like it's it's okay. Like you shouldn't feel guilty for not meditating.
1: No, you shouldn't <laughs> feel guilty for not
0: meditating. Right? Because so I think a lot, I think there's a lot of guilt. Like, well, you don't mindful meditate. You should be mindful. Okay, you shouldn't feel <laughs> that. Well, Miguel, is there some place people can go to learn more about your work?
1: Yeah. So I have um, I have a website. Uh, we have a Facebook page for the Buddha Pill uh, as well. There's a new edition coming out with some updated material. And um, there's there's a number of um, of programs, even a BBC Radio 4 documentary called Mindfulness and Madness, which may be interesting for those that are looking at the adverse events of meditation. Yeah, have a look at my website. There's, there's a number of, of things out there. Well, Miguel, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Brett.
0: My guest today was Miguel Farias. He is the co-author of the book The Buddha Pill. It's available on Amazon.com. You can also find out more information about his work at miguelfarias.co.uk. Also, check out our show notes at aomis we where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show, you've got something out of it, please give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly.